You're listening to the Complete Performance Systems Podcast, where we cover how to get really strong, increase sports performance, training, nutrition, rehab, and lifestyle. Hey guys, welcome to the Complete Performance Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Hakamaki, and I have here with me on Episode 6, Adam Besick. Adam is a personal trainer and a nutrition coach. He has been in the industry for around 14 years and has a history as a physique competitor. In this podcast, Adam covers his thoughts on industry-specific certifications, where he starts when a client comes to him, calculating caloric needs and macronutrient distribution, Differences in general population versus competitive physique, assessing weekly nutritional changes, the hierarchy of muscle building nutrition, diet strategies, meal composition and timing, reverse dieting, optimizing muscle protein synthesis, metabolism misconceptions, and progressive overload versus progressive resistance. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Adam gives a lot of insight into nutrition and training strategies. For both competitive athletes and general population. Adam, do you want to kind of give the listeners and viewers a little of your background and tell them a little bit about who you are? Sure, sure. Uh, well, my name is Adam Besick. Um, I am a personal trainer and nutrition coach. I do one-on-one personal training as well as online coaching uh, for diet and exercise. Uh, I've been doing this for the better part of, you know, 13, 14 years. Um, I myself have been a physique competitor, um, an aesthetic-based competitor, if you will, on different levels. And I, I not only train um, physique competitors, but also a large portion of what we consider general populations clients. Um, so yeah, it's kind of the the <laughs> the short run of what uh, what I do and, and where I'm coming from. I notice on your social media, you kind of have a plethora of certifications behind your name. Uh, do you want to kind of go over? Um, your certifications and what you have found to be most useful in your career and your adventures? Absolutely. There's a lot of adventures. <laughs> um, I think the first thing I would say is, you know, a lot of the continuing education that I've done outside of the formal education I've done is, is taken me just as far, if not farther. Um, the certifications are great because you have an alphabet of acronyms after your name and people think you know what you're doing, right? And so that's important um, just to give peace, people peace of mind. Um, but I would say of all of them that I've gotten, uh, that I've obtained, the most valuable one would have to be um, through the NSCA, my CSCS, which is this is kind of our industry's gold standard. Everything else, I would say... Um, I just recently got one called the PPSC, which is the pain-free performance specialists, which was a great one. Um, but all the other ones were really just acronyms to have more credentials. Um, I was in, in a track or on a track to become uh, a professor for lifetime fitness and they work with the NASM, National Academy of Sports Medicine. So I got all their certifications just because I had to have them. Um, but I'd be lying if, it, if I said it was tough. 
<laughs> it was really easy to pass all of them, get them. Um, I have a precision nutrition certification, which is basically my nutrition certification that allows me to coach and gives me that scope of practice. Um, but yeah, I'd say if out of all of them, the, uh, NSCA certifications hold the most merit and, um, probably been the most valuable for me. You mentioned you do a lot of physique and general population coaching. Um, where do you start when you get a client that comes to you? Um, you talking online or in person? Either. Once you've assessed their goals, kind of where do you start them out at? Okay. And then and, and you might be speaking more to like a nutrition standpoint? Yep, correct. Okay. And, and you know, like we touched on kind of before we, we started rolling here, there's always going to be inter-individual context that governs where you start with somebody. But there are tons of calculators out there that you can use to to essentially assess someone's or estimate someone's basal metabolic rate and their estimated total daily energy expenditures. The Mifflin's a jor there's the Aragon, the Ketchum Cardle, there's all these kind of different ones. And what I actually do is when someone comes into me, I have a, not a super lengthy questionnaire, but a questionnaire that goes over all the pertinent variables that I need to know about somebody. Um, and I formulated basically took all these calculators, put them in an Excel sheet, and put the numbers in and it spits out. And what you've probably found yourself is that they don't all agree, right? They don't all agree as to where someone's metabolism is. They're roughly the same, but they're not the exact same. And so there's an art and science to it because I can have you come to me and I can say, all right, Tyler's BMR is 2000. If he works out four days a week, his estimated total daily energy expenditure is 2,500. And this is, these are just arbitrary numbers. Um, but I also have to assess where are you coming from? If I can get information from somebody, it says, this is what I was doing up until this point. And let's say you're eating 1800 calories and you weren't losing weight. I know I got to do something because you're not on the level where you should be for a healthy metabolism. And that's a, that's one individual context. But when I have someone come to me, I take those numbers, which are just good guesses, essentially. And then I have people track their food using an app. I use one called Chronometer. To me, it's the best one in the industry right now. I have them track their food. And basically, I, I for all intents and purposes, have them eat what they should be able to eat to maintain weight. In the first couple of weeks, if they're diligent, I watch how their weight changes. If their weight drops, I know their metabolism is higher. If it goes up, I know it's probably not adequate. If it stays the same, I know they're right where they're at. Now, I don't do that with everybody. And that's, that's, that's just a general context. Like I said, if you come to me and I know already the information you give me is you're not even there yet, I'm probably not going to search you there because I know you're just going to gain fat. I might build you up to it. But the way that I approach people when they diet is – or, or they want to come to me for nutrition, whether it is gaining muscle, whether it is losing body fat, performance, whatever it is, is I want to make sure that I can audit essentially their metabolic rate through some consistency through food consumption right away. It's a pretty simple process. It's I work with, I do a lot of continuing education like we talked about, um, a group called Muscle Nerds who have learned a tremendous amount from. And it's this concept of trying to do your due diligence as a professional to make people, health, people healthier. 
and serve their best health first, as that's going to serve all of their goals, losing body fat, gaining muscle, improving performance, strength, whatever it is. So it's, it's kind of the long and short of how I approach someone nutritionally when they come to me. You mentioned the word metabolism a lot in those sentences. <laughs> um, me with a background in exercise physiology, I, I know where you're coming from, but there's a lot of misconceptions with the word metabolism. Do you want to cover um, some common misconceptions about what people are going to take away from the word? You know, my metabolism's broke. It's why I can't lose weight. Well, I think that's, that's a great question. In general, your metabolism is basically... The, for how people will understand it, even though it's more nuanced than this, how many calories you burn in a day in the context of which I'm using it. Your metabolism is how many calories you burn in a day. And your body's never broken, per se. It's never. Your metabolism isn't broken. It might, it might have decreased as an adaptation to help you survive if you haven't been eating enough calories, but it's never broken. But for the general population, and as the, as they use the term, metabolism is essentially how many calories you burn in a day. Even though it, it as you know, being an exercise phys graduate, it's much more than that. But in the context we use it, it's just how many calories you burn. So once you got your calories or your total daily and energy and expenditure and expenditure. Uh, calculated, um, where do you take your clients' macronutrient levels and how do you go about um, deciding where each of them need to be? That, that's also a good question because here's where, and, and this is how I approach it, and there's, there's, there are, and I shouldn't say there's no wrong way because there are definitely wrong ways to approach it, but there's a lot of right ways to approach it. Um, the first thing is obviously getting a, a set amount of calories that you're going to shoot for, right? Um, the next thing is protein consumption. For most people, a gram per pound of body weight is a great place to stay. General health, losing weight, gaining muscle, it's a, it's a good place to start. And largely, I have usually an even distribution of carbohydrate and fat um, for the rest of the calories, uh, depending on a lot of things, one of them being personal preference for people. A lot of people come to me and say they like to have maybe a more, you know, they use the term keto diet or they want to try this or that. And they, I can certainly come, I can certainly serve a person's um, interests and wants to a certain degree. Um, so personal preference comes into play there. Um, if someone tends to be, um, have a higher level of adiposity, like they're really obese and they come to me, um, I might not have a, a super high a carbohydrate percentage in their diet. Um, I myself, I'm not obviously a doctor, but I will have people at times measure different biomarkers like HRV or fasting blood glucose, resting heart rate to give me a better idea of internally what their physiological state is. And if I have someone who comes to me and, and can do that and they have, you know, fasting blood sugar above 100, for instance, I probably have I'll probably have a little lower percentage of carbohydrate for that person. Um, but like I said, usually it's just an even distribution. Um, what I would say is this, though, and this is just how I coach. It's not right or wrong. Usually there's an upper threshold of when I'm pushing calories for somebody to get their calories higher where I don't go above a certain amount of fat, and I'd rather just change carbohydrate 
Just have a set amount of protein, set amount of fat, and use carbohydrate as the variable. Um, but there's no magic to after you to figure out calories and protein, there's no magic to the distribution of carbohydrate and fat. Once you have it figured out, um, in terms of bringing it back down to help the competitor general pop uh, diet or lose weight, how do you go about assessing um, their weekly progress and how do you know where you got to go for changes from that? That's a good question. Um, and, and week over week, it sometimes can be tough because there are so many moving parts, right? When you start coaching a large portion of people, the number one thing that becomes the linchpin in success isn't necessarily trying to figure out the best strategy. Like I'm, when I coach people, my skill is rarely tested. What it comes down to is how do I get someone to comply? And compliance is, is a difficult thing where for most people, general pops, they don't have to be hundred percent compliant to a diet plan to be successful. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't oftentimes want them to be 100% strict because long-term they're going to fall off. But when I, when I have someone check in, and I do have them check in weekly, I have variables like weight. Um, unless you're a physique competitor close to a show, I don't need pictures every single week. Um, sometimes I do circumference measurements with people. Um, and then basically adherence. Uh, I, I obviously look at I take account for energy expenditure by looking at all their activity. They complete everything um, and how much food they, they basically ate. With the app, the chronometer app that I spoke to before, what's great about it is I have a professional account where I can go into all of my clients' diaries and analyze every little nuance of the diet. And so I can get, if they, if they track, again, there goes the compliance thing, if they track 100%, I can really get down to the nitty-gritty nitty of the data. And so what I have also found that is very helpful for people that, that may be doing what I do, a game changer for me was if the person's ready to do it, to take daily AM weights rather than one weight a week. And week over week, look at the average and look at the trend because I found out a lot of things that I didn't see before when I just took have them take one weight measurement a week. Now we have to remember that the psychological component to this for people is huge. So I have had people that have tried and they just mentally, it messes with them too much. And there's some people who don't have them weigh themselves at all because it's too much of a mental, emotional um, issue for them. But I have found definitely um, some obstacles I was able to overcome from doing that. So for instance, people that would have a cheat meal on the weekend, I'd see trends of the same weight at the beginning of the week and drop down to the same weight at the end of the week to where if they checked in with me, I would say, well, you know, I don't know, you're the same weight. I don't see what's going on. Well, I could see their cheat and how much it affected them, and they got back to net zero at the end of the week. It also, if you have one weight per week, you only get a snapshot. You don't see the other days. And so sometimes it might be lower, sometimes higher than the rest of the week. And so it's just that's that's been a game changer in terms of assessing um, really weight change as a variable um, over time. Yeah, I think that's huge for 
dieting and just anything in general, whether it be performance, um, not everything's going to be linear progress and especially not for very long. Um, I'm not a physique competitor and I'll never claim to be, but do you want to kind of give uh, the background on what you've noticed, uh, the difference between physique and your everyday general pop in terms of nutrition and how you kind of work with them and what are major differences? Yeah. Um, there's a couple major differences and it's not, may not be what you think. The one big one that as a coach is very difficult to deal with when you're working with someone who is just trying to be healthier, lose weight or gain muscle as a gen, we call it what we call general pops versus an aesthetic athlete is their emotional state relative to their progress is irrational. And most people's <laughs> is anyways, but theirs is on a whole new level. And when you're a coach who who's good and who cares, you have you have an you have an attachment because I'm also human and I have an, an emotional attachment to the to the success and progress that my clients have and the happiness that they have. And what's very difficult is you'll have a client, you know, oftentimes, and I don't want to pick on bikini competitors, but they'll will wake up and they'll be a pound or two up in the, in that day. Well. Logically, we know they didn't gain two pounds of fat as tissue in that day, especially if they're on point. It's just a fluid change or whatever it might be. But to them, it messes them up. I get a text, hey, I look like shit today or whatever. And they get so messed up about it and it emotionally affects me. The next day, they're down three pounds. And then, man, I feel so good. I was tight this morning. And so physique competitors, in I want to say rightfully so, but because they're on stage almost naked, and they're showing their body and they're comparing themselves to everybody have this really, really irrational, um, illogical connection emotionally to their results and their progress. And they, they, as they get closer to a contest, their perspective of everything in their life <laughs> gets really bad. Um, there are very few clients that I've ever worked with that have had good perspective. I've had some that are able to emotionally handle the roller coaster that is a preparation for a contest. Um, I think I think the other big thing that is different when it comes to a physique competitor, and not always, but in general, they tend to have a little more intrinsic motivation, right? For whatever reason, whether it's because they're going to be on stage naked, because they want to push themselves, they tend to come with a little more intrinsic motivation. So I can be a little bit more strategic with them. I can be um, a bit, I don't want to say harsher on them, but I can push them harder, right? Push their limits because I need to in order for them to be successful. And the fact of the matter is for physique competitors, when they're in show shape and they're actually competitive, it is not healthy. And so I'm taking that person out of the window of what is a healthy human being, a healthy organism for a period of time that I try to minimize and, and best <laughs> do as best as I can and then get them back out. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's in general, the, the main differences I see, um, the process is still largely the same. I mean, the only thing that might be different is that when it comes to the last couple weeks in, you have to refine their physical look on a particular day. There's some, there's some management of carbohydrate, of water and electrolytes in training and all these variables that go into how someone might look at a particular given time that you have to 
juggle appropriately and monitor. But other than that, it's kind of a similar approach, just taking longer, uh, a longer amount of time and being a little bit harsher. As a physique coach and uh, just nutrition coach in general, I'm sure as uh, competitors get closer to competition, um, muscle mass becomes a thing of their worry, um, whether it's looking flat. Can you go over your hierarchy of muscle building nutrition and kind of um, the what stands out to you on how to build muscle while you're going through a prep? Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, is as you, you know, we actually kind of spoke a little bit about this before we started rolling. When you're in a prep, by and large, we are looking at a caloric deficit, right? So truly gaining muscle cross-sectional area <laughs> during a prep is a very difficult thing to do. There are particular contexts where that is a possibility, where you can gain muscle and lose body fat at the same time, but <laughs> that usually doesn't happen, especially if someone is a competitor who's done who's dieted and trained for any appreciable amount of time, it becomes, and as they become more muscular and leaner, the task of losing, losing body fat and gaining muscle at the same time becomes even closer to impossible. So the game is more so one of how much muscle can we maintain whilst we lose body fat, which is a tough thing to do. It's a moving target constantly. And like you said, like you, you noted the, the concept of, um, a competitor feeling flat, right? And we know through science that a gram of carbohydrate will carry a larger percentage of weight in water. The number that people throw out oftentimes is like 3.6 grams per gram of carbohydrate, but it's actually not that. It's much more variable than that. But for all intents and purposes, every time you store a carbohydrate in your muscles, it stores at least roughly twice the amount of water. And so if you have someone who's carb depleted, who's been dieting, they're going to look fat and flat is what people call. People call how they look basically. And it's, that's a process that's usually needed because you need to create an energy deficit somehow. And, and you need to be using the energy substrates that are sitting on your body. So that you get leaner. Um, but what happens is you start to lose intramuscular glycogen and water and it tends to that water can diffuse to different parts of your body, different compartments, namely under the skin. So not only do you look less defined, but you also look smaller. And what I do sometimes for people that are getting afflicted by that, that look and it's affecting them emotionally, if it's warranted, I'll give them what we call a refeed. Right. And, and that tends to be in practice most oftentimes just giving them a caloric surplus through carbohydrate. And if you do it right, basically their muscle glycogen will increase to a certain level. The water will move in with it and they'll look a little bit leaner and a little bit bigger. And so, you know, that as you as you could tell from what I just said, there was no real true muscle gain that happened or fat loss that happened. But it was just a short, acute, transient change in how they look by, you know, changing their food around a little bit. Um so over, like I said, over a prep, the game is just how much muscle can you keep while losing body fat? And it just takes strategy. 
What are some other strategies you use as the competitor gets closer to competition? Um, do you use carb cycling or any other cheat meals, any other type of strategies? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that I'll approach it. And that has evolved for me as a coach um, over time. The The concept of cheat meals um, and it's in that sense um, is tough because, yeah, I do give cheat meals to people. Um, hold on really quick here. Um, sorry. I do give cheat meals to people, but it's more so not necessarily for the physiological effect that it causes, but more for a break. And I do that with a governor of saying, hey, you got a show coming up. I'm going to let you relax for a meal. Make it roughly the size of your largest meal. Don't binge, whatever. And so that does help. And there's a physiological effect because it typically is a caloric surplus. A lot of times you're getting extra carbs. If if the client is really motivated, really disciplined, I'll do refeeds. And that's just a fancy word for a calculated increase in calories. And I'll do that in a lot of different ways. Um, for instance, a lot of competitors, I'll do just a couple, either nowadays I usually do two, two days of uh, uh, an increase in carbohydrate. I monitor their weight daily so I can see how that affects them. It gives me data from when we get closer to a show to see how they respond. Um, I also use for people that are, might be general pops, and you might have heard this term that's thrown around, uh, diet breaks, which I don't know. Same thing with refeeds or cheats. I'm not convinced, and I don't think the data, and you can't quote me on this, but I don't think the data really supports the fact that there's this large physiological change in hormone secretion that comes from, you know, one bolus of calories. That is, you know, people say, oh, my, it bumps up your metabolism a ton or turns all these different hormones on. I'm not convinced that that necessarily happens. Um, and I don't, I just don't know if there's data out there that really prove that aside from just theory. And if that transient increase in like leptin um, and thyroid output really does have, really is more than transient, meaning that it's longer than just the day. And if it actually has long-term effects. But this, this concept of diet breaks has come about in the last couple of years. I'm not sure the, the name of the study, but you, you know Lane Norton is. He's the guy who talks about it the, the most probably. Yeah. And really all that is, instead of a refeed, is basically you take someone through oftentimes a week, maybe two weeks in time, where they, they're in uh, what would be an estimated deficit up until that point. They may have hit a plateau in weight loss. So mainly through carbohydrates in that one to two week time period, you bring them up to what estimated maintenance calories is. And so I do that sometimes with, I've done that not as much, but recently with clients uh, who are maybe more general pops and trying to lose body fat um, with some success. It's tough for people sometimes because if they're dieting and Bringing them up to caloric maintenance through carbohydrate is not that much for a lot of people. <laughs> you know, it's not the same. Like when you have a cheat meal, it's like liberating. When you have a diet break, it's like an extra 100 grams of rice or, you know, whatever it is. It's not that much per day. So it's not that psychologically um, satiating for people. Um, but I have seen a little bit of success in both adherence and in – um, body fat loss continuing thereafter with it. Um, but I still 
I still believe in um, and have used multi-day refeeds um, and, and had a lot of success with that. I just had a podcast with Gabrielle Fundero, um, and we talked about meal composition and timing for gen pop and performance, um, specifically sports performance. Do you want to go over kind of meal composition and timing for like a physique competitor or just um, how you use it for stimulating muscle protein synthesis throughout the day? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a great, um, that's a great topic to touch on too. It's, I think I made a post today about um, <laughs> not, I never bash any diets, but I always speak the truth on things so that people, that the general public, that people that want to be healthier, that want to lose weight, know the actual information that they don't, they get bombarded by such this large amount of misinformation that's emotionally biased by people because maybe themselves or someone else they, they love have had success with a particular diet or they're vegan and they love animals, which whatever you want to do, that's fine. Because we know that what the success with diet is managing calories and protein intake. Everything else sure matters, but those two things are paramount, right? We do know this though, that Roughly, the, this this idea is called protein pacing. I believe it was Arciero was the the main you know guy that's done a lot of the research on this. And protein pacing is this concept of basically the body can't just continuously like if you just keep taking in protein all the time, the body can't just keep turning on the machinery to build muscle. There's a governor to it, and it's basically been found up into to this point in time that roughly, roughly every three hours, three to four, we can turn on that machinery to build muscle. It's called the muscle protein synthetic response to food. And if you get in 20 to 40 grams of a complete protein, you can turn on that machinery, essentially. Um, And if you can do that at every interval in time within a given day, Theoretically, you just maximize the amount of muscle you can build within that day, given that your calories are adequate to stimulate that too. And so when it comes to a physique competitor, this isn't necessarily, this isn't speaking to everyone who wants to have, you know, better general health. But if you want to either maintain the most amount of muscle possible or gain the most, uh, most amount of muscle possible, you need to be using that strategy. And a lot of times people think that we eat at those intervals to boost metabolism when in reality, that's, it's not how that works. Um, it's more so to create this protein pacing effect whereby you can maximize the amount of muscle you can grow by utilizing that. And so I'd say for a physique competitor, if you want to be successful, if you, I shouldn't say that, if you want to reach your optimal results, you should be using that strategy. Yeah, in terms of calories for energy and your body actually burning the calories um, for fuel, a lot of people I don't think realize 3,000 calories split into three meals versus 3,000 calories split into 10 meals. It's still the same amount of calories burned. <laughs> same term of food, yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, you mentioned uh, maintenance calories uh, getting low as competition comes. What are your strategies on how you get the maintenance calories back up after post-comp or post-dieting? Um, 
that's that's a great question. So when someone is, has worked with me and has done a competition and is coming back, it's the easiest to do then. And, and the reason is, is because I already have exact data on that individual leading up into that point. I know how many calories they were taking. I know how many calories they're taking over time, what their energy expenditure is. And so it goes back to the same thing I said before about when I have a competitor come to me, it's going to, or, or any of a client come to me that wants me to help them with the nutrition. I'm going to assess their goals more than likely. If it's a physique competitor coming off a show and they want to keep competing, we, we're going to transition to a period of time in, in what we call an off season, if you will, where they're going to develop muscle in the areas they need to, which is going to require at a certain point in time, a caloric surplus. And a lot of coaches go about this differently. And again, there's a lot of right ways to do this because we always have to throw in the psychological component that comes with this. When a competitor is done with a show, they just got, they just had 16, 20 weeks, whatever it was of being super strict on their diet. And they're probably mentally exhausted. They didn't have any times, <laughs> any meals out with friends or anything like that. So I like to be a little bit liberal with that. Um, but I also want to keep in check um, <laughs> their diet at a certain, at a certain uh, to a certain amount because they're also not only are they they're apt to gain a decent amount of muscle after that when they go into caloric surplus, but their muscle and their adipose tissue, their fat tissue, is primed and sensitive to to <laughs> basically grow as well. And so that's a period of time that can be pretty sensitive and you see a lot of people balloon up afterwards because they, they basically go back to normal eating and or they actually eat way more than they need to because they've been, been deprived. Now you have an individual that went under metabolic adaptation over the last 16 weeks. That is, their metabolism decreased because they were losing body tissue. It did that to survive. So they have a lower set point of metabolism, right? They're burning less calories. And so when I come out of that, I do usually have competitors, you know, that weekend they get to be a little bit liberal with their food. Uh, sometimes I just let them do it because they eat too much and they feel like shit and they don't want to do it again. <laughs> and and um, after that, the weeks that follow, um, I let them have, you know, a liberal meal or two a week. And then I slowly but strategically bring up calories. And it's going to depend on, how, how much activity is a person getting back to, male or female? Um, how much did we have to restrict them? So there's a lot of factors, but it's this, the concept of reverse dieting people is basically a, a strategic and smart, subtle increase in calories after a time frame of dieting. And like I said, there's a lot of right ways to do it. Um, I know John Meadows, for instance, is actually was my coach in 2013 likes to get people back up to a, a body fat they feel comfortable at right away. So whether they go from four to 9% in the first two months or whatever, he's fine with that. He just wants them to get back to where they feel healthy and they can train hard. Some people don't want to do that. They want to slowly build them back up. And so, like I said, not a right way to, a lot of right ways to do it. But in general, you give some people a little bit of liberty on a couple meals a week. So they bring up their food. Um, when it comes to training, you tend to, and you're, you're familiar with this deload and you're probably familiar with deloading in the sense of deloading intensity, meaning the amount of weight that you're using. I'll also deload volume and frequency, meaning 
they just don't work out as much. And I certainly don't bring them to failure on movements for the, the, you know, several weeks after to, to a month after. And really what I tell people to do is I'll have a set regimen from the do, but I give them a lot of autonomy and liberty to go in and just have fun, get a pump and enjoy the lifting because they just went through a long period of time where they got their ass kicked and they had to go in the gym. And for a lot of people, it became a chore. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I approach it from a dietary and training standpoint. I love how you bring up deload and training. Um, a lot of people, I think, believe abs are solely and strictly made in the kitchen, um, which, you know, you got to put some work into. But as a um, bodybuilder, per se, with you, um, do you want to kind of give how you provide overload? I, I feel like the common misconception with uh, bodybuilders or physique competitors in general is they just lift, you know, for hypertrophy, a ton of reps, ton of reps. Um, and they miss the point of, they still also have to provide overload and you, especially you're extremely strong. <laughs> and I think people get the misconception, misconception, uh, mixed up with hypertrophy is needed to a certain point for strength gains. Do you want to go over kind of how you increase, um, load over time yeah and i think it's i think it's important to outline the fact that progressive overload and progressive resistance are two different things and meaning progressive resistance is the idea of increasing weight or load over time whereas progressive overload is simply a progression in many variables it could be whether it be I mean, my favorite progressive overload is simply getting people to better their skill at movement, right? If you do a movement with better skill over time, you know, as a power lifter, if you're more efficient with a movement, you're going to become way stronger. Um, another one is time under tension is another way to progress. Um, obviously, more repetitions, less in terms of rest periods or less. There's a lot of ways to to instill progressive overload what i think is important to note for physique competitors is to understand that up until now we have found several mechanisms that cause growth in muscle tissue mechanical tension being the largest one muscle damage and then metabolic stress being another those all can take place in different rep ranges um, with different loading, different loading schemes. And so if someone wants to, at least as we know now to science, maximize muscle growth, they need to be, they need to be touching different rep ranges and stressing different systems. That is you, you should be doing some time in that maybe closer to five rep range uh, where you're, you're getting close to failure in some time, 15 to 20 repetition range which will have their respective times under tension right and that's all to say like you said you can't do it one way constantly if you're doing 8 to 12 reps at the same speed with all the movements forever you're going to hit a plateau you need to start varying you need to vary the stimulus you put your body under over time in order of course to get stronger but also to develop muscle tissue as well that strategy there's definitely a lot, of, again, a lot of right ways to do that, um, but there is strategy to that, and <laughs> that's why you see some people look the same all the time in the gym, and some people making progress. And so, yeah, like you were saying, you gotta, you should be at certain times in certain movements, aiming for strength, 
at sometimes in certain movements, bumping up the rep range even to, like I said, 15 or above. Um, so I hope that kind of answers that question. I can definitely go into more nuance in, in different areas of it. So, Yeah, I definitely think you answered a lot of the question. Um, I know as a power lifter, a lot of changes in accessory lifts um, come to assist the main movement in terms of like uh, positional weakness. Uh, weaknesses for physique athletes, you know, are on looks and uh, body parts. How do you go about addressing a weakness in terms of looks? Mm-hmm. Well, the main thing here, and this kind of goes to this point, who do I have? There's, I love people. All, people always like to argue with me about science. It's like, I'm not telling you stuff that's my opinion. I usually just put out stuff that's like scientific fact. And, and so you've heard of the term bro split, right? Yep. So for people who don't know what a, a bro split, it's a funny name for basically training a muscle group essentially once a week. So a guy will do chest or someone will do chest, then the next day back, then the next day legs and arms. It's a very traditional way to do things. It's what a lot of people do. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't honor the fact that we know through science that muscles can be trained more frequently than that. And if we want to maximize the amount of muscle we can build within a given amount of time, we should be hitting things for all intents and purposes when they're ready to be hit again, right? So if we know a muscle should be recovering within 48 to 72 hours, theoretically, our frequency for a given muscle group could be about that same amount of time. So if we have a physique athlete that wants to improve a body part, we use the old weeder you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, principle, priority principle, where oftentimes I'll put that body part at a, a beginning of an, uh, a session. Um, let's say for instance, someone, a lot of times physique competitors need to bring up their shoulders. I will n- not hesitate to throw the shoulder movement on an upper body day first, even if it's an isolation movement. And that goes away from what we're taught as strength athletes is why would you do an accessory lift? an isolation lift before a compound movement, like, like a bench press. It won't make any sense, right? If you're a strength athlete, but when you come, when it comes to being a physique athlete, we have to use that priority principle and, and do those kinds of things to honor what body parts we need to bring up. I'm going to hit them when they're freshest. I'm going to hit them when I can maximize the amount of load. I can put on with good form. I'm going to hit them frequently. So I'd say the main thing that it comes down to is prioritizing whatever muscle groups you need to bring up and making sure you honor frequency. And for a lot of people, that's difficult. And what the hell am I going to do with that? Well, that comes down to your programming. How are you going to structure your week? And that can be an art and science in itself and difficult. That's why I have a job (laughs) to help people do that. But what I would say is that if you have priority body parts to bring up, you have to put them first for all intents and purposes. And you should be honoring the frequency of Every probably every third day, hitting a muscle group twice a week is should be sufficient. Three times might be a, a bit much, and you'd have to undulate your intensity. So long as you're getting enough sleep, adequate hydration, and enough calories and protein, you should be good to go. You mentioned hydration. Uh, do you have any tips for peri workout uh, advice on what people should be doing prior to a workout? That's great. And actually, you know what? Um, so, do you know uh, Matt Porter? I do. 
So I recently started writing for MPA. Um, unfortunately, obviously, as you know, Matt passed several months ago, and um, they needed someone to step in and help with content creation, and I was referred to them. And so the last two articles I've wrote for them are on Perry Workout Nutrition. And I think the important thing to note is going back to what I talked about, and this will speak to mostly physique athletes. If you're implementing a protein pacing strategy, that is eating an adequate amount of a complete protein, a quality protein every three hours, your peri-workout nutrition is then a function of your meal timing. So what that means is, let's say your next meal falls smack dab when your workout is. That is a perfect indication to have a peri-workout nutrition drink or shake, right? You can get your essential amino acids, carbohydrates, depending on your um, your particular goal at the time and at that time. Um, so largely for physique athletes, for 90 to 95% of people, it's simply a function of your meal timing. And you want to have something that's really easily and readily absorbed and digested in that workout window, whether it's the, if you're having a meal that's an hour within, it better be something that you can adjust easily. And the same thing with your post-workout. But it, when it comes to an intra-workout shake, for most people, it should just be a function of if you're supposed to have a meal at that time. It makes the most sense to get it in then. Now, what I will say for the that other 10% is there is something to having essential amino acids and carbohydrate during a workout se session in dampening the muscle protein breakdown effect. What, like you go back to John Meadows, what, how he describes it is, is a great way, is he, he imagines digging a hole. You're digging the hole a little bit deeper if you're not doing it. And if you take an intro workout shake, you're basically not digging the hole as deep. And you can fill it back up a lot faster and a lot easier. And so I think there is some merit, although there's no real science um it's just sound theory that if an anecdote like uh, you know obviously himself and myself with clients have seen better recovery better muscle mass gains but there's no science but it, it's sound theory to say hey if we're taking in a, a supplement that's going to augment muscle protein synthesis or at the least dampen muscle protein breakdown we're going to come out the other end of a workout and be able to recover better go back and, and hit that muscle again in the requisite amount of time. And the composition of the intra-workout shake is going to vary but depending on the person. But by and large, having at least something that has 10 to 12 uh, grams of essential amino acids, one to three of those being leucine, whether that comes in a free-form amino acid powder or like a hydrolyzed um, protein powder, uh, just depends on your budget, depends on how well your GI responds to it. One more question here and then I'll let you go. But if you had to make um, a diet recommendation, a nutrition recommendation just for anyone that they probably aren't doing, what would that be? <laughs> it's pretty loaded, but just yeah, for general health. Because, man, I'm, I'm, I am the guy who likes to say it depends but knows that that doesn't answer the question for a lot of people. Um, man, that's a great question. I would say this, and I always, always touch on this. You just ask the question again just so I, I make sure that I answer it correctly. 
if you had to choose one piece of advice to give just anyone on nutrition or diet tips that they probably aren't currently doing in their lifestyle, what would it be? Okay. That's a, okay. I think I know what I was going to say. This is more so a tip in perspective. When you're choosing to do a diet, right? You what for whatever reason you want to do it. Chances are, Whatever you want, the result that you want from that diet is something that you want to keep, right? For most people, if you want to lose weight, I want to keep the weight off. So whatever you choose to do, make sure that is something that you can continuously do. Because the number one dictator of success with any diet for any reason is adherence. After that, if that's not there, nothing else matters because you're not going to adhere to it. So whatever practice, whatever diet you want to use, make sure it's something that you can keep doing. Because if you envision it as something that I can only do this for two months, your results are going to last two months. And so that that's probably the biggest thing. Choose what you can continually do and sustain to do for the rest of your life, theoretically. I love it. Adam, thank you for being on today. Thanks, man. It was great. To, I love doing this kind of stuff. It's fun. Really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.